Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This morning's reading is Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Friends, I wonder what is the saddest song you've ever heard? What is your go-to song when you just need a moment? Uh, You know the kind of thing, words that tug at the heartstrings, uh, music that stirs up that tear in your eye. Uh, Maybe that sad song is about brokenness or, or loss or lost love. All about those maybes that never were or uh, the could have beens that never came about. I was taking a funeral the other day for uh, a lady and the family asked for Ed Sheeran's Supermarket Flowers. And that's a pretty sad song. Uh, Apparently he wrote it when his grandma died. In the middle of that song he sings, Oh, I'm in pieces. It's tearing me up, but I know that a heart that's broke is a heart that's been loved. It's true, isn't it? When someone's lost, it's heartbreaking. It's desperate. And it strikes me this morning that Psalm 53 could have been written with a broken heart. One of the saddest psalms in in the songbook. Words which tug at the heartstrings and music that stirs up a tear in your eye. As one commentator put it, In Psalm 53, we have the harp's most melancholy, most dismal notes sound again in our ears. That's cheered you all up for a Sunday morning, hasn't it? Well, here we are. Let's hear this sad song of David's and let's look for some encouragements, even some hope, even through the tears. Now, just as a little point of interest as we get going this morning, Psalm 53 is actually an almost carbon copy of Psalm 14. The same sad song appears twice in the Psalms. It's likely David wrote it when God's people were under some kind of ongoing persecution or attack. Uh, Something was going on amongst God's people, that's for sure. Maybe from outside the nation, some people, some commentators say, no, that was inside. Something was going on inside at the heart of God's people. Something was going on. It's a time of unrest or unsettlement right in the middle of things. Well, if you want something of a big idea for this morning, 
If uh, you want to uh, think about the, the big picture of this psalm, it goes something like this, I think. Given the depths of human depravity and the certainty of overwhelming judgment, we stand with David and cry out in praise of a saviour. Let's see how that all fits together, shall we? Got a, a couple of headings for us this morning. First, uh, remember the depths of depravity. David's song begins uh, with the case of the aggressive atheist, the vocal God denier, the person who would never entertain the idea of a sovereign God of heaven. Look with me there at verse number one. The fool says, in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. He is a fool, says David, who says in his heart there is no God. And well, whilst that is true, it doesn't stop the God denier from holding to that pretty desperate position, does it? What makes this man a fool? Well, think about it. Here is someone standing in direct opposition of uh, the God of heaven, direct contempt of God Almighty, someone shouting from the rooftops that there is no God in the hearing of the God of heaven. It's madness when you think about it, isn't it? But that's the folly of the God denier. David is right, isn't he? How far the fool has fallen in God's eyes. This person is corrupt. His ways are vile. There is no one who does good. Now here's something interesting. The word for fool here in, in the Hebrew is Nabal. And it's no coincidence that a man named Nabal appears in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 25 now remember from last week, Doag, you saw him on the video, uh, Doag the Edomite. Well, in the very next chapter of 1 Samuel, we meet Nabal, Nabal the fool. He was Nabal the Calebite. His wife Abigail was with him. She was the smart one. What made Nabal a fool? Well, he refused to acknowledge the authority of David when he sent his men to come and find some food. Rather, Nabal hurled insults at those men. He sent them away empty-handed. He had no time for David or his authority. In the end, foolish Nabal was struck down by the Lord and he died. But do you see, Nabal the Calebite, he embodies the life of the God-denying fool of Psalm 53, who in his folly hurls insults at his maker and refuses to acknowledge the Lord as the king over everything. But having placed Nabal there in the spotlight, the beam now widens to a pretty devastating conclusion that all people everywhere have that spirit of Nabal within them. David pictures the scene as God from his throne looks down from heaven. And it's not a pretty sight. As God sees his people, he does so with a tear in his eye and a broken heart. Here's verse two. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. 
all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Who is the good person around here? Where is the person who is right with God? God looks down from heaven and everyone has turned away. They're all like Nabal, corrupt, vile in God's sight. He can hardly stand the sight of them. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's tragic, isn't it? A world full of people made each one in God's image by his wonderful creative hand and yet all have turned away. And whilst they may not be those shouty, aggressive atheists, they are functional atheists in that they organize their lives and their families, their work, without any reference to God whatsoever. In relational terms, they have said a very clear no to the God of heaven. They've pushed him away and, well, it's tragic. God looks, but he does not find even one who is right, one who would put God first in their life. What on earth is going on here? What David has put his finger on is that awful truth of what the reformer John Calvin called total depravity. It's what the Apostle Paul talks about too, and he he quotes these verses in Romans chapter 3, doesn't he? Sin has wrecked our relationship with God. The poison of sin has entered every corner of every person. There is no one righteous, not even one. Born as children of Adam, we inherit together that original sin from the garden all those years ago leaving us no better off than that noisy atheist Christian in your natural state. You are no better than your unconverted friend. Now, I know it's very easy to say, isn't it? Oh, I'm not like that anymore. My sins have been forgiven at the cross. Wonderful. That's brilliant. But look, the vocal God denier of Psalm 53 is just, one rotten fruit among the many who deny God in much more subtle and crafty ways, uh, through sinful living, uh, through a me-first, self-centered life. And sometimes we Christians do that too, don't we? Whilst at the same time paying lip service to the God of heaven. Friends, let's not think we're above all of this. As Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. We need a bit of sobriety this morning, don't we? See ourselves as we really are. And whilst we have that incredible benefit of salvation through faith in Jesus, we mustn't gloss too quickly over these verses which tell it how it is. It tells us how we are. Let's not gloss too quickly over the fact that our sin problem is is just behind us now. Whether it's pride or or greed or faithlessness or anger or or drunkenness or gossip in my natural self, I am Nabal. I am he. Every sin in itself is a foolish act of God-denying rebellion. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I 
don't need more than a quick cursory glance in the mirror in the morning to see that I am not right. I can never be right in God's eyes outside of salvation in the son that he sent. And my friend, if you are stuck in a sin, please would you stop and repent? You're sinning before the God who looks down from heaven. He sees what you are up to. It's madness, isn't it? When we think about it like that, yet we do it all the time. We hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. And we end up in a mess which spoils and wrecks God's image in us. If only we could see our sin for what it is. God denying rebellion. Uh, Friends, can I say whatever it is, whatever that sin in your life, it's not worth the pleasure and it won't be worth the pain. Uh, So run from your sin and run to your saviour. Embrace the one who can save you. But you can see, can't you, why this is a, a sad song? Why the lyrics tug at the heart? Why the melody stirs a tear in the eye? Would you remember me? The depths of depravity from which you and I were called and chosen and saved at the cross. And then find in our hearts some humility for others who who still struggle with sin. Who perhaps at the moment are struggling with that sin more than we are. Second heading for us, reflect on the certainty of overwhelming judgment. Well, if breaking God's heart in rebellion wasn't bad enough, the middle section reminds us of God's perfect justice. God must act against rebels. His judgment is sure and certain. He will completely overwhelm all who are opposed to him when the time comes. Look at verse 4 with me. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you, and put them to, you put them to shame, for God despised them. What David sets out here is a picture of what the God-denying fall of verse 1 he suddenly comes to realize that there is a God after all. Verse four, the fool is going around as if he owns the place, lording it over others, getting his own way at every opportunity. In his godless living, he devours people as though eating bread. He doesn't care who he destroys along the way. But then look at verse five, that sudden realization In an instant, the very same fall now overwhelmed with dread where there was no dread. And the horror show of the very next moment, he is completely destroyed by God. His bones are scattered in judgment for all to see. Friends, we know this judgment, don't we? We see it in the story of Noah, that flood water that comes down upon mockers and scoffers washed away in a moment overwhelming dread where there was no dread. We see it in that final plague in the Exodus as the angel of death sweeps through the land 
sent to destroy every firstborn in every family. Suddenly, those families overwhelmed with dread where there was no dread. Jesus spoke of the certainty of final judgment in Matthew 24, didn't he? Suddenly, says Jesus, the end will come. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. See, when that final judgment comes, it will be devastating as it will be overwhelming. And here's the thing. Remember, there are only two types of sinner here. The God-denying sinner who rejects God and faces that final judgment or the God-affirming sinner who accepts God's rescue and escapes that final judgment by a breath of faith. Two types of sinner. One will be taken, the other left. The writer C.S. Lewis, he put it like this. He said, in the end, that face of God, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each one of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I don't know what that looks like around here at Forward, but I can tell you how things are in Kilnurst. Roughly speaking, we're a parish of around about 6,000 people, a church family of a little over 60 adults. You do the maths. That's a reach of 1%. That's all. Just 1% actively following Jesus week by week, Sunday by Sunday. You see the implication. When the wrecking ball of God's judgment sweeps through the parish of Kilnurst, a tiny handful will be saved. The rest swept away. Like the many fools before them, their bones scattered in shame. And I don't know about you, but that is the kind of picture that gets me out of bed in the morning. Most of the people I meet aren't vocal atheists, but they are functional atheists. They live their quiet lives in willful ignorance of the God of heaven. Their actions and decisions made entirely without reference to him. Worse than that, and here's where the tears should flow, they're headed for a lost eternity, for a day of dread where there was no dread. See, friends, here in Psalm 53, we need to reflect on the certainty of this final judgment and the plight of the lost. Oh, that we might have a greater impact where we are, a deeper conviction in the gospel, a greater love for our neighbor, a greater sense of the lostness of the lost, and a greater desire within us, within our hearts, to get alongside people, to search them out, to live and speak the gospel more and more, and point these people to the only one who can save them. Over in Kilnurst, the 60 or so of us who call ourselves Christians, we think this is our absolute priority, our key task, the most important thing we can do with our time and our money. It all feels a bit fragile, a bit pathetic sometimes. But we are God's makeshift mission team for the little corner of the kingdom where we find ourselves. 
And so, if you want to do one thing this morning, would you pray for us? Pray for boldness and courage to reach more and more lost people as we hold out to them the word of life. And we do so before it's too late, don't we? But here's the deal, when we go back, when I go back, we'll do the same for you. Uh, We uh, will pray that the church family here would have that same sense of collective burden for lost people. To be effective in reaching out and offering them something of the good news of Jesus too. Thirdly and finally, rejoice at the sending of a saviour. It is at the end of the psalm that the melody picks up a little, the mood lightens, but for David this feels more like a glimmer of hope than a certainty. See, having plumbed those depths of human depravity and and thought about the overwhelming judgment, uh, David comes to an answer. God's people need a saviour, sinful people cannot save themselves. Verse six. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. It's one of those not yet moments in scripture, isn't it? David knows the answer, but he can only hope that God will do it. And so he cries out in a prayer of hopeful praise. Oh, that salvation would come. Dear Lord, please send the rescue. We need restoring. We can't save ourselves. We see our sin. Now show us our saviour. Well, wonderfully, as we look back with our gospel glasses on, we see that the day of salvation has come. So clearly provided in Jesus, the one who came out of Zion to live that perfect life, to die in the place of sinners, destroyed on the cross to rescue a people for himself. A couple of weeks ago, we were on holiday in Northern Ireland. We visited the Titanic Museum in Belfast. I wonder if you've been there. We heard the story of Thomas Andrews naval architect and chief designer of RMS Titanic, who traveled with the ship on her maiden voyage. On the 14th of April, 1912, at 11.40 in the evening, Titanic struck an iceberg on the starboard side, and on hearing the news, Andrews rushed to help. He knew the ship was sinking, that it had no hope. So he spent the next two frantic hours searching for the lost. He was going around banging on cabin doors, handing out life belts, distract, uh, directing many passengers to the safety of the lifeboats on the upper decks. Despite his privileged position in the ship's crew, he would not leave that sinking ship. He went down with Titanic to a watery grave. He saved many others, but he would not save himself. See, friends, this is the rescue of the Son from heaven, the rescue in which we rejoice this day. Jesus came to search out the lost and bring them home to himself. It was in our lostness and depravity that Jesus came to find us knocking on the door of our lives, 
lifting us up in forgiveness, setting our feet on the solid rock that is Christ. That same rescue that we hold out now to others. Let's do that together with the urgency of Thomas Andrews. Souls are perishing and the lifeboat of the cross stands ready. I was hearing this morning that, uh, just like us, you've got many gaps on many rotors, many uh, bits of ministry that need doing around the place. Let's not hold back. Let's not stand by and let someone else do this work. Let's get stuck in. Let's stand ready and direct people to the lifeboat. My prayer for us this morning is that the dismal words of Psalm 53 might leave us rejoicing more and more in the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, show us our sin, but show us our saviour. Remember those depths of depravity. Reflect on the certainty of overwhelming judgment and rejoice at the sending of a saviour. Let us pray. God of heaven, we are so ashamed when we read these words and see how much they reflect in our own life and experience. We are sorry and repent. May we come to you today with those repentant hearts knowing how far short we have fallen. But Father, we rejoice in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it was in our depravity that he came to find us that he came to rescue us, lifting us up from the pit, setting us feet firmly on that rock. And so we pray today for ourselves and we pray for our mission to the lost here in Forward, over in Kilnurst, in many other parts of our diocese as well. Father, please help us in this mission. Go ahead of us. Grant us that fruit uh, that we might see your hand at work. And would you keep us rejoicing in Jesus today and for always. In his name we pray. Amen.